Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Darker Things. I'm your host, Scott J. Gow. Today's episode is the Invisible Serial Killer. Now, to some extent, all serial killers are invisible until they're caught, or they kill themselves, or they're never heard from again. But in most cases, they are known entities while they're killing. We know they're out there somewhere because law enforcement has linked their murders together by MO or region or they found a group of bodies in the same place on a Long Island beach. We might even know their name while trying to track them down. Ted Bundy comes to mind. If we don't know their name, we might give them one. The Golden State Killer, the Green River Killer, the Night Stalker. Or they might give themselves a nickname. Zodiac, Son of Sam, BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. But the serial killer we're going to meet today never had a nickname because no one knew he existed. No one knew he was crisscrossing the country roughly 14 years, carefully planning, scouting his victims, and burying them so they'd never be found. No one had any idea that Israel Keys was out there, one of the most calculating and dangerous serial killers of our time. Keyes traveled the country from Alaska to Vermont, looking for people to kill totally at random and funding his crimes by robbing banks. His crimes were very well thought out. There was nothing that was spur of the moment. Everything was meticulously planned. I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you is me. How long have you been two different people? (laughs) Long time, 14 years. Serial killers have existed back to the days of Jack the Ripper, and probably before that, but the term serial killer didn't come about until 1974. That's when FBI investigator Robert Ressler coined the phrase. It has a pretty specific definition. Generally someone who kills three or more people on at least two different occasions, and there's a significant amount of time between the murders. So someone who walks into a movie theater and starts shooting isn't a serial killer. That's a mass murderer. And a couple that jumps in their car, hits the highway, and kills people at rest stops for a couple of weeks, they're not serial killers either. Those are spree killers. So there's the definition. The science of understanding serial killers has come a long way since the 70s. FBI profiler John Douglas and his colleagues helped push the agency to study and interview known serial killers. The idea behind this was to build a database of knowledge that might help catch future killers by developing profiles, predicting their next moves, things like that. Another important question is whether serial killers are born or made. Douglas believes it's both. People are born with genetic predispositions to become psychopaths. The science backs that up. But as Douglas says, there's no serial killer who had a great childhood. A good TV show to check out about this subject is Evil Lives Here on ID, the Investigation Discovery Channel. Each episode features a friend or family member of a killer talking about that person's history. In each case, there were always signs in the childhood of these people, even back to like four years old, that something wasn't right with them, or something was really wrong with them. 
And then there are stories along the way that shape and form this person. So nature and nurture combined. By the way, Evil Lives Here has the greatest and creepiest intro ever. The music is a song called What's So Amazing About Grace by The Paper Chase. I'll just say it's a one-of-a-kind piece of music that is haunting and original. And if you'd like to check it out, What's So Amazing About Grace? One of the best explanations I've read on why we need to talk about people like Israel Keys comes from the final words of John Douglas's best-selling book, Mindhunter. The book tells the story of him interviewing heinous serial killers and sex offenders in the hopes of finding common threads to build a better understanding of who these people are, what created them, and what motivated them. On his final page, Douglas recounts the story of him giving a lecture to a mystery writers group, and he was relaying information about the cases that he worked on and the serial killers that he interviewed, and he says people were seriously getting grossed out and tuning out his lecture while he was telling the stories of some of the things that he and his colleagues dealt with every day. Douglas writes, I saw they had no interest in hearing the details. At the same moment, it must have dawned on them that they didn't want to write about it like it really was. Fair enough, we each have our own clientels. He continues, the dragon doesn't always win, and we're doing whatever we can to see that he wins less and less. But the evil he represents, the evil I've confronted throughout my career, isn't going to go away, and someone has to tell the real story. And this is the real story of Israel Keys, the invisible serial killer. There are some disturbing details and minor language coming up. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2012. Shortly after 7 p.m., Israel Keys pulls out of his driveway in Anchorage, Alaska. He's driving the white Chevy pickup he uses as a builder and handyman. His destination is 15 minutes away, a coffee kiosk called Common Grounds. He's been casing the place for days, and tonight, he's gonna rob it. Keys parks in a Home Depot lot across the street and waits. It's cold and dark. With him, he has a coffee thermos, some plastic zip ties, a headlamp, and a 22 revolver. In his ear, he listens to a police scanner. At five minutes before eight, as Common Grounds is about to close, Keyes crosses the street and approaches the kiosk window. Inside is 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. There's nothing between them, no glass, not even a screen. Keyes puts down his thermos and asks for an Americano. He looks around to see if anyone's watching. When Samantha returns with his coffee, Keyes pulls out his gun and says, this is a robbery. Turn off the lights, give me all the cash in the register. On video surveillance, Samantha can be seen with her hands in the air, moving around the three foot wide work area. Keyes then tells her to get on her knees and put her hands behind her back. She does so, and he binds her wrists with the zip ties. He leaps into the kiosk. As they amble through the parking lot, Keyes spots a camera on the ground. It looks new. When he goes to pick it up, Samantha takes off. Keyes chases after her and tackles her. He says he'll kill her if she tries to escape again. He tells Samantha to act like she's drunk and to cling on to him. 
They cross the road that way and reach his truck. He puts her in the passenger seat as if he's helping a drunk teenager into a car. He whispers, this gun is loaded with very quiet ammo. It'll kill you, don't make me do it. Samantha's terrified, but silent after her escape attempt. Keyes pulls out of the parking lot, and a few minutes later, remarkably, they sit at a stoplight with two cops in a patrol car right next to them. It's like a scene out of a movie. Time stands still. Will Samantha be able to do anything? But the light turns green, and the police, unaware of what's happening a few feet away, drive off as Samantha watches in desperation. Eventually, Keyes drives them back to his house, where he lives with his girlfriend and 10-year-old daughter. They have no clue what he's up to. Keyes and Samantha sit in his truck until he feels safe taking her into the shed in the backyard. According to the FBI, Keyes ties her up, sexually assaults her, strangles her to death, and leaves her lifeless body in the shed. He goes into his house, packs his bags, and calls a cab to catch a flight to New Orleans. He's going on a two-week Caribbean vacation with his daughter. Meanwhile, a frantic search takes place in Anchorage for Samantha Koenig. Police see the surveillance video of the abduction, but who had taken Samantha and where was she? Days go by, then weeks. The community is racked with desperation. They hold a vigil. Somewhere out there, Keyes has Samantha's cell phone and ATM card. And on February 24th, more than three weeks after her disappearance, Samantha's boyfriend gets a text saying to look in Connor Park beneath a photo of Albert. Friends and family rush to the park to find a bag pinned beneath the photo of a missing dog named Albert. Inside the bag is a photo of Samantha holding a newspaper with the date of February 13th and a demand, deposit $30,000 in Samantha's bank account. To family and friends, it's a sign that maybe Samantha's still alive. Her father deposits $5,000 in Samantha's account, and within hours, someone's on an ATM camera withdrawing money. He's wearing a creepy mask and gloves but police can't get to him in time. Finally, on March 13th, a camera spots Key's truck in a motel parking lot in Texas. Authorities stake it out and watch Keyes get into the truck and drive off. They follow him. When he exceeds the speed limit, he's pulled over. He flashes his ID. It says Israel Keyes. Authorities had never heard of him. A search of Key's truck uncovers Samantha's debit card, her cell phone, a gun, and a disguise matching the one seen on the ATM cameras. Keyes is arrested and extradited to Alaska. But at this point, the FBI doesn't know if Keyes had just stumbled upon Samantha's cell phone and ATM card. His criminal record to that point was one DUI, so he didn't scream murderer or serial killer rapist. In fact, a guy in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Alaska had used Keyes as a handyman, said he seemed like a nice guy. But once Keyes is in the interrogation room, the FBI realizes they could be dealing with a monster. That photo of Samantha? It turns out she'd been dead for two weeks when Keyes took it. He propped open her eyes, put on some makeup, and no one could tell she wasn't alive. 
He admits killing Samantha the same night she was abducted, hours before he takes his 10-year-old daughter on a Caribbean cruise. Keyes also tells authorities he dismembered Samantha's body and drove 35 miles north of Anchorage to Matanuska Lake. There, he drills a hole in the ice and dumps in her body. Then he goes fishing and catches fish he later eats. This is one of those darker things that serial killers do. Keyes tells the FBI where to find Samantha, and after 10 hours of searching, divers locate Samantha Koenig, bringing some heartbreaking answers to her family, friends, and the community. This was only the beginning for the FBI. Agents began a painstaking, frustrating, months-long dialogue with Keyes. He begins to reveal a serial killer who'd been murdering people all over the country for more than a decade. Agent Jolene Godin interviewed Keyes for about 40 hours. We believe there are 11 victims total, and that is based primarily on what Keyes told us. He, he was evasive when we tried to, to pin him down on a number. He would say it was less than 12. But then there were things that he would say that led us to believe that by less than 12, he simply meant 11. And so he, he was quick to correct us in interviews if we had something wrong. So there were several times where we just threw out statements like, you are 11 victims or things like that, and he didn't correct us. So we believe the number is 11. At least 11 victims, from Alaska and the Northwest to New England and places in between. The FBI eventually tracks Key's movements, dozens of flights all over the country. He tells his family stories that are convincing about these trips. And on some of them, Keyes buries kill kits, caches of guns, ammo, rope, things needed to dispose of bodies like Drano. He usually puts these items in containers and buries them in the ground. He plans to come back and use these things, maybe years later. It's something the FBI had never heard of. This is one of the ways Keyes went undetected. He would fly or drive hundreds of miles, not needing to take anything with him. Who would expect the same person is killing in Vermont and Alaska? Keyes also told the FBI he liked remote locations, like state or national parks, any place where there were few witnesses and he had no ties to the area. Here's what he said in one interview. Back when I was smart, I would let them come to me, just remote area. Kind of go to a remote area that's not anywhere near where you live, but that other people go to as well. You might not get exactly what you're not as much to choose from, in a manner of speaking, but there's also no witnesses, really. There's no fields around. At the beginning of that clip, you hear Keyes say, back when I was smart. And that's a theme throughout his interviews. Keyes was so prepared for his murders, he left almost no chance of catching him. But for some reason, with his last one, Samantha Koenig, he got sloppy. There's the ATM card, the text to the boyfriend, the ransom demand. These were things he didn't do before. And it's not clear why he stopped being so meticulous, but one could speculate he was likely wearing down after years of doing this. So who exactly was Israel Keyes? was the second of 10 children born into a devout Christian family. They also espoused white supremacist beliefs and mainly lived off the grid, in tents and a cabin his father built. Keyes was raised in Washington State, but later the family moved to New England. 
They didn't believe in government, public schools, or medical care. All 10 of the children had been home birthed. By age 10, Keyes was stealing guns, then torturing animals, a textbook sign of a budding serial killer. He told the FBI at age 14 he knew he wasn't normal. He was having thoughts he didn't think anyone else could possibly have. Then, when he was around 18, he committed his first violent act, the rape of a teenage girl in Oregon. During this time, Keyes was studying serial killers, and he knew he had things in common with them. He even read the book I mentioned earlier, Mind Hunter. Again, here's FBI agent Jolene Godin. He said that it was in his kind of early 20s, mid-20s, that he really came to terms with who he was. Uh, recognizing that he was different from other people and that he had these urges and that there wasn't, you know, he tried to initially blame it on, you know, Satan and religious things and, and why he was like this and a number of different things. And then he ultimately realized that that's just who he was and he accepted that. And I think that as he began to do that, it became easier for him to do. We talked about enjoying the fact that he was two different people and really being able to play that off um, with people and that people had absolutely no idea what he was doing. When he was 20, Keyes joined the Army, where he served three years and was honorably discharged in 2001. But his time in the military was marked by heavy drinking, and he was becoming two different people. He was an uber Army man, but also a person who scared the bejesus out of his fellow soldiers because, you know, he was a psychopath. He even laughs like one. Listen to this. So following his arrest in the Koenig case, Keyes had a court hearing during which he tried to escape. Somehow he managed to break out of steel leg irons, then lunge over a railing into the spectator section before being subdued and tased into submission. Here's the exchange he had with police afterwards. I mean, come on, let's face it. Yeah, what happened yesterday? Ooh, I'm a bad guy, I tried to escape, but um, let's be honest. Nobody really thought I was a good guy before that, so... <laughs> it's not like me escaping suddenly makes me untrustworthy. I was kind of untrustworthy before that, so... <laughs> I think you hear what I mean. In his interviews, Keyes slowly gives up information about other murders, but he only ever names three victims, and it's painful to listen to the back and forth with the FBI. His goal is to get the death penalty and get it as soon as possible. Of course, the U.S. justice system doesn't work that way, so there's a lot of frustration between the interrogators and Keyes. Here's what can happen today. You give me the name, I write it down. I don't ask any more questions. We all have some lunch, talk about whatever you want to talk about. You have a cigar, uh, you know, we can uh, talk about the weather what's going on in Anchorage, you know, whatever. All I, I just write down the name, you have lunch, you have a cigar. Well, I mean, it sounds tempting, but no, I'm not, I'm not giving names. I'm not giving any names. It goes on like this for hours, the FBI practically begging for information, trying to ply keys with cigars and bagels and coffee, befriending a serial killer, essentially. In addition to the death penalty, Keyes also desperately wanted his name not linked to a series of murders. He said it was mainly about his family. He didn't want his girlfriend and daughter to endure the media attention. Keyes was invisible while he was killing, and he wanted to stay that way. 
a lot of history's serial killers have been quite the opposite, seeking attention whenever they could get it. But all serial killers have one trait that applies to both of these types of personalities, control. Eventually, in addition to Samantha Koenig, Keyes also confesses to murdering a couple in Vermont, 50-year-old Bill and 55-year-old Lorraine Courier. It was in June 2011. Keyes flew to Chicago, then drove to New England, where he dug up one of his kill kits, and he decided to go hunting for victims. He left his motel in Essex, Vermont on foot. He chose the courier's house because it was one story, easily accessible, and they clearly didn't have children or a dog. He broke in and then forced the couple into their own car, driving them to an abandoned house he'd picked out. The next few hours were messy. He raped Lorraine, shot Bill, strangled Lorraine, and left them for dead in the abandoned house. Unfortunately, the house was later demolished without anyone knowing there were two bodies in there, and their remains ended up in a landfill. Here's an exchange about that situation where Keyes is trying to keep his name out of the newspapers. You're wanting to take responsibility. Your plan is to take responsibility if you can figure out how to do this without getting the recognition, which is kind of yeah, like what's going my, on in Vermont. Right. My concern, the problem is nowadays, uh, the more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try to do some kind of stupid freaking TV special or, you know, you know how it is nowadays, like with all this true crime bullshit that people are obsessed with and that's a, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I am concerned about that, about someone connecting the dots on this. True crime bullshit. It's an appropriate phrase for Israel Keys because that's pretty much all he's filled with. Law enforcement spent days and a lot of money searching for the courier's bodies in that landfill. Keyes acted like he hoped the bodies might be found, but that's just a lot of BS. Did they find the bodies yet? I think it's a football field and the stuff yeah. they're going there. They're making they're making progress, but it's just a, it's it could still be like a couple weeks or something. Yeah, they definitely they're not going to stop. I almost feel guilty. <laughs> Costing the taxpayers a lot of money. <laughs> but this kept my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> the courier's bodies were never recovered. Aside from Samantha's body, none of Key's other victims have been found. They were either dropped hundreds of feet into a lake, or Keyes wouldn't or couldn't pinpoint exactly where to locate them. Also, the couriers were in their 50s. Samantha was an 18-year-old teenager. This is one of the things that makes Keyes unusual. Based on this small sample, and if we knew more of his victims, we'd be more educated about this, but it didn't appear that Keyes had a victim profile like so many other serial killers. And this is one of the ways he differs from one of his role models, Ted Bundy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the couriers lived very close to Burlington, Vermont, the birthplace of Ted Bundy. There's no doubt Keyes was good at what he did for a long time. Otherwise, he would have been caught sooner. But what's revealing in the interviews is that he had no intention of stopping. This was his life's work, and in addition to studying serial killers, he watched shows like CSI. I think he even spent a lot of time lurking on online forums about missing people. He was a 21st century serial killer, but he wasn't infallible. 
Here's an exchange between Godin and Keyes over a fingerprint found on one of his killing caches, and then we hear Godin talking about Keyes. On the tray that holds the ammo in there, there's a perfect right thumbprint. Yeah, right. No, there is. <laughs> I don't have the lab report. <laughs> wow. Uh-oh. More CSI stuff. Yeah, I'm impressed. Well, I'm disappointed in myself mostly, but I'm <laughs> The lab examiner called me. I don't have the report. When I get the report, I'll show you the report. I'm too lazy to even dig a hole for that one. Just piled rocks on top of it. Are you planning on going back for that? Yeah, this summer. Israel Keys had no remorse at all. He, um, he enjoyed what he did. He talked about enjoying what he did. He talked about, you know, had he not been caught, um, some of his future plans and what he would have done, which included continuing to do what he was doing, continuing to to kidnap and murder people. So he, he had no remorse at all. On Thursday, November 29, 2012, Israel Keys had his last interview with the FBI. They talked about the weather. He said he wasn't hungry. They planned another visit for the following week. But that Sunday morning, Israel Keyes was found dead in his Alaska jail cell. He apparently embedded a razor inside a pencil and also somehow managed to strangle himself to death. Until the end, he was alarmingly resourceful and undetected, even in captivity. And he was in control. He left a rambling suicide note that talked about American commercialism and other BS, but he provided no further information about any of his victims. Of course he didn't. He only cared about himself. I'm certainly not going to read the note, but for the record, it ended with this jewel of poetry. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it up with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open your trembling flower or your petals I'll crush. I don't know the depth of knowledge that we can learn from Israel Keys. I just know he existed and he was frightening and he was invisible for years. His own mother called him evil and that he certainly was, but how can a human being devolve into an Israel Keys without anyone seeing it or doing anything about it? It's a fair question to ask. As a society, should we be more aware of the people around us? And as John Douglas said, we need to shine light on cases like this because the evil isn't going to just go away. The FBI still has a webpage on Keyes with a timeline that shows everywhere he went throughout his murderous years. I think they're hoping someone out there might be able to connect some dots and help identify more of his victims. I sure hope that happens. I'll post that link and some other stuff this week on my social media. On Twitter, it's at Things Darker. And then on Facebook and Instagram, it's Darker Things Pod. I do hope you'll follow and interact with questions, uh, suggestions for future episodes, comments, and then, of course, I'd love to get reviews on podcast apps.
My completely random recommendations for this week aren't random at all. One is a book that came out last year called American Predator about Israel Keys. The author is Maureen Callahan. There's also a podcast produced by Our Americana that has two full seasons about Israel Keys, much more in-depth, a deep dive into all of his potential victims, much more on his background. And the name of the podcast comes from the words of Israel Keys himself, True Crime Bullshit. That's going to do it for this episode of Darker Things. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.